This is Sailor. Welcome to another episode of Metal Rock and Whiskey. Well, hello, my friends. What is up? Hey, hello. hello. God, what was that? I was <laughs> going to say hello, and I changed it to hey, and so it came out halo. <laughs> hey, hello. Is that like a Glen Karen? You guys oh, are making up gosh. words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it doesn't help that I have this cold and I'm on medication and my brain is all woozy, but we'll try to get through this. You sound a little stuffy. Yeah, yeah you sound like crap. Jesus. <laughs> I'm like I did a few weeks ago. Well, I was being nice, but yeah, you yeah, sound like crap. It's my turn now. <laughs> so apologies in advance. Sorry. It's well, we're all back together for real, and we're back together with the battle. So it's like the real, 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 I guess. I'm yep, excited yep. about it. How about back you guys? In the saddle. Very excited for this one, that's for sure. This one, I have to say, was a bitch. This one upset me a lot. Um, Yeah. But it also was really, really fun. Um, Without spoiling anything yet, the band that we're going to talk about tonight is a huge, huge part of my, gosh, more than I realized, like my intro into music, into rock. And... uh, It brought back a lot of memories listening to these albums like all the way through. And uh, I'm really excited to get into this. But, you know, I was thinking about one of the songs and I thought about you guys. You know what you guys are? I know that tune. (laughs) And we will be discussing one of my favorite rock bands who put out many a tart shopping hit in the late 70s and early 80s. Are they British? Are they American? Well, actually, they're both. Tonight, we are talking about the band Foreigner. And in our typical two or three way album battle, we are pulling out all the stops, all of them. And we're just, just discussing five that you heard right five of their albums and attempting to narrow them down to one album which shall reign supreme quite a task quite the battle royale whose idea was this who agrees to this oh shit that was my idea god i'm an asshole i always it always seems like a good idea until i get into it then i'm like did i agree to this this sucks this is hard first first time for everything on metal rock and whiskey (laughs) <laughs> we we keep doing the first. We keep doing them. Uh, but I will say one thing that is not new is we do drink on the show. Yeah, we do. We drink every week. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Sometimes a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so this is the part where we go around and discuss what we have in our glass or glasses. So right. who wants to start us off? I'll start us off because right. I know that Ed has the whiskey segment tonight. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I wanted to drink something tonight that I was, I was having a hard time figuring out what I wanted to drink, what I had um, already in the house or what I could grab easily. And I looked at uh, my bottle of Blackened and I was like, this is perfect. So that's what I'm drinking tonight. I'm <laughs> drinking some Blackened. All right. I'm actually drinking something, since I don't have my uh, whiskey segment, I am drinking something else. Oh. So... And it is, I tried to get, grab something out of my cupboard that gives a slight nod to Foreigner and a nod to my whiskey segment. And what I have here is um, called Chef's Collaboration, which Ooh. is a blend of rye and bourbon. And blend being the key word here uh, with Foreigner and with my whiskey pairing coming up. Which chef, Which one mm-hmm. is it? This is, I guess... Uh, I don't know the what they call one? them, batches, or number two, whatever. Batch number two, two or... it's number two, yeah, yeah. the second. They're, I think they call them just first and second, I think, because it... Yeah, this is number yeah. two. Yeah. The better of the two. Yeah, I agree, yeah. number two is freaking amazing. Which is great. Which yeah. not everybody agrees on that, I, I, which I found strange, but the minute I tasted it, I was, I don't know, I, I just immediately, I didn't even have the two with me at the same time to compare, but I just remembered, and I just, and then when I went back and drank them side by side, I stood by two for me is the best yeah i've Absolutely. never had the opportunity to shoot to uh, try the first one so not sure how i would feel about that but i definitely like number two it's so good how about you matt what are you drinking well i am doing a little double dip here um i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself but i am drinking uh christmas ale right now uh because getting ahead of yourself i am getting ahead of myself but in beer world you know pumpkin beer is oktoberfest or are starting to the season's starting to end already, uh, so all the winter beers are coming out now. <clears throat> so I mixed a little six pack of some winter stuff that just hit the shelves and uh, partaking in a little uh, Anchor Christmas Ale, which is one of the better ones that come out every year. Uh, and then in my Glen Cairn, I have <laughs> your Glen Cairn. My Glen Cairn. It's still my favorite thing she's ever said. It's so good. I love it. I love it. <laughs> So good. So great. <laughs> so good. That will be uh, in the the annals of Metal Rock. Oh yeah. Whiskey. Oh yeah. Greatest okay. hits for sure. It's kind of like after Napoleon Dynamite, everybody was saying quesadilla. You know, just to be uh, yep. like, you know how to say quesadilla, but you would say quesadilla. The Glen Karen now is it for me. Yeah, I just think to... we've we've recorded. We haven't released, but we've recorded four or five shows since then, and we've probably mentioned it every time. I know. <laughs> <laughs> since then. Good job, Denny. Yes. One for the ages. <laughs> uh, so in my Glen Cairn, uh, I am drinking uh, an, something from an independent bottler. It's not something that I usually partake in, kind of the independent bottlings, but um, it's an Alexander Murray. It's a Highland single malt. Uh, Alexander Murray is one of the bigger independent bottlers in Scotland. Uh, I think that they might actually have either the first or second most um, stock of like quantity of barrels 
uh, in Scotland for an independent bombler. But uh, I'm drinking their Bon Accord, which is, like I said, a Highland single malt. Uh, they don't really, they do a lot of business with different distilleries, but they have an agreement where they won't, you know, overtly say where they got their whiskey from, just what region it is. So uh, that's what Bon Accord means. It means good agreement in Gaelic. So, uh-huh. um, yeah. So Alexander Murray, um, it's exclusively available at only a certain store. Uh, so I would suggest that you are in, um, you know, a total wine to pick some up. You know, 40, 40 speaking, bucks. speaking of whiskey in general, I'm mm. going to have to, uh, correct something that I said a while ago and, uh, I'm, I'm always honest. So, uh, we had discussions several times about that freaking peanut butter whiskey. Mm-hmm. What is it called again? Screwball. Screwball. That's it. The stuff and... that's like blowing up. <laughs> I've been waiting yep. for this. Yep. I've been waiting for this. I know. I'm sure you have. So <laughs> I was upset because I don't want to see any more fireballs on the market. You know, like I feel like we're we're done with that shit. Southern Comfort and dare I use the C word apple and all that crap. I'm just like, come on. Do we really need more? Of this flavored whiskey bullshit. Which we don't. But I will say this. I finally sat down with it for real. And um, I think I did say before. That I would probably be more apt to use it as a liqueur and cocktails. As opposed to drinking it by itself. Um, so I don't, still don't think it should be called whiskey. But that's just me. Um, I think, you know, flavored whiskeys should just be called another thing. But anyway, you're right, though. It it shouldn't. It shouldn't be called whiskey. It really shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, unless you're distilling peanuts, I think it's bullshit to call it whiskey. But there's a category called liqueur for a reason. Exactly. And that's, I, you know, and, and I think the fact that they signify that by proof level and other things is bullshit. I think that any, any spirit that's a flavored spirit that doesn't fall into a vodka category or gin or whatever, you know, it, who cares the proof level? It should be in the liqueur category. That yeah. that's just that's or me. Just but call it, or just call it flavored spirit. Just have a separate sure. category. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I understand that calling it whiskey these days it's a buzzword. It's a hot word. It's going to put you in the right cat. What you think is the right category? But again, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe you're going to piss off a lot of whiskey drinkers because we're immediately going to go with the hell peanut butter whiskey and recognize that it's you know, not really whiskey. I would have, I think my, I think had I seen that on the shelf and labeled a liqueur, I think I would have grabbed it and at least tasted it, at least asked to taste it or go to a bar and taste it to see if it was a well done peanut flavored spirit, which it is. I will give them that. It is very interesting. It does not taste super chemicalized. Um, as most flavored things do. There are some out there that do a very good job of not tasting like it's artificial and chemical, but most of them do. And that's my issue with most of them is I don't like tasting chemical and fake and yuck, you know. Um, There's a little bit of heat in the back, which I found really interesting, almost like a um, capsaicin heat. Um, It just really, it's very interesting. It's very flavorful. I cannot fathom how anyone could sit there and drink a glass of it because it's so incredibly sweet 
but I think as a mixer, as a liqueur, it's it's fantastic. Um, so so I just wanted to correct myself on calling it out for being garbage and but again, you know, watching multiple bartenders and multiple people in um, liquor stores going, what the fuck do I do with this? I believe it's because it's called a whiskey. I think had it just been called mm-hmm. a liqueur, no one would have questioned it. Everyone would have been, ooh, intrigued. You know, ooh, what's this? Let me let me try it. Let me taste it. Let me see what that's like, rather than it being called a whiskey. So. Well, you're a thousand percent right, because I think if it was just a liqueur amongst a thousand other liqueurs, I don't think it would be getting as much um, anywhere near the the at the the publicity it's getting attention thank you yeah um it's getting it all but as soon as you say you add whiskey at the end of it then everyone's ears perk up and i've noticed that too so thousand percent correct yeah but we've been we've been fucking around with it a lot at at work um trying to combine it with maybe different things like we have a couple of um like coffee liqueurs we've been doing like 50 50 trying to get because you know I mean, the American palate in general, I think, lean Please, towards sweet. Lean to what? <laughs> I was gonna say, I know, I know. Yeah, it yeah. leans leans towards sweet, leans towards, um, you know, sugary. So, I think you know, combining whether it's like a pumpkin spice liqueur with peanut butter or a maple pecan liqueur, chocolate, Oof, God, that's coffee. Disgusting. Yeah, well, it, it works, and people. For me, love it, I so. so I made an old fashioned with it, and so instead of using simple syrup. I just simply use that and you have a peanut old fashioned, no cherry, orange only. And the orange kind of breaks up the, 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 uh, it's again, it's again, it's one of those viscosity things. You know how I feel about viscosity and spirits. We've talked about this a lot. Um, and Kayla and I have talked about this a lot on love on the rocks as well. Um, for me, the citrus broke it up, uh, helps break it up a little bit and kind of balance it out. But that was a nice way to use it as a, simple instead of using a simple syrup you know or demerara so i liked that application um i actually put a couple drops of it in a whiskey sour that was phenomenal i always use egg white always in my whiskey sour unless people have allergies um and the creaminess of the egg white and the velvety texture with the peanut butter liqueur was fantastic so um for me it's all about balance and so I have a difficult time. I would I would not be the one to go to other liqueurs with it. I'm trying to find a way to remove some of that. Oh, it's it's overly sweet and overly viscous. Mm-hmm. So I try to like pull back on that a little bit. I could see using real coffee though, making like a real coffee drink yeah. with it, like a cold brew. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that's not sweetened at all, and then adding that to it, and then a high proof whiskey. And doing an application like that, I think, would be would be actually really nice. Yeah, the old fashioned sounds amazing. Yeah, it it, it was really nice. You you've got to yeah. use that. Be careful how much you use. You're definitely going to use. You know how if you only put two tablespoons or you know a teaspoon. Me, I'm a teaspoon in an old fashioned. That's all you're going to use of this liqueur. So just know that because it is very sweet. Um, and you can add more if you need to. You know, obviously, you have to play with it. But definitely use that nice orange rind. And, and um, make sure you're going to expel those oils so you really get that nice citrus and that nice zest in there. And it seems to break it open enough. So. All I know is if you can uh, make a cocktail that tastes like a Reese's peanut butter cup, I am all in. Hell yeah. Well, I think if you go for a, a bourbon that has like heavy chocolate notes and... Um, a stout maybe? 
I don't know. Again, it's like sweet upon sweet upon sweet. I think I would probably want to do, um, I'd probably make something my own with chocolate, but I'd use a dark chocolate so it wasn't sweet, you know, or a semi-sweet. Um, How about like a Godiva chocolate liqueur or something like that? So sweet. Too sweet. Yeah, that's Too just sweet. So sweet on sweet. Yeah. sweet. Oh, that's what I mean. Like I, ca- I can't imagine again, doing another liqueur in there. Up. Sweet. Well, yeah, but I but you can do it without using another liqueur. That's what I'm saying. Like you can yeah. you can do like a chocolate sir a semi sweet chocolate syrup that's actually just reduced, you know. And you could do a, I think a cold brew coffee would, if especially if it was like a rich chocolatey bean, would give you that flavor. So, mm. yeah. So I just wanted to um, just make that statement because I've given it a lot of shit. I'm always going to give it shit for being called a whiskey, but you know, someone in marketing knew what they were doing, and there you go. All right, good to know. I might have to give that a try one of these days. And circling back real quick, Sailor, I think you would actually really like this single malt because it's Highland peat. I know you're a fan of Highland peat. So it does. It it does. Yes. So it does have that softness of that. um, And it does have just that little smoky backbone, not that gut punch uh, Mm -hmm. that you get with the island stuff, but it has just that supporting characteristic. That just balances everything out so nicely. So, is it more like the Pete Week? Um, I don't think I've ever had the Pete Week. I don't what? think you ever. You never. You never sent me a sample. Oh, shit, you don't have it at the store. You can taste. Um, it's like a hundred and ten bucks. No, but they don't have one open. Well, I guess they. Would. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, I was I'm able to open it. One hundred and ten bucks. I was able yeah. to open it for festivals, believe it or not. But that was like you know. Uh, yeah. Well, all right. Next time this I get is, my this hands is the on third, this is the third of the price though, so that's why. Yeah. I'm, well, yeah. I'll definitely I'll try it. I mean, the thing, yeah. the only reason that I liked that that peat week, and that's the only peated whiskey I've ever in my life liked, is because mm-hmm. it was so incredibly soft and subtle, so mm-hmm. subtle. So if you feel like it would be subtle to my palate, I'll give it a shot. I believe so. It's just a supporting character. That's all okay. it is. All yeah. right. Interested to try it. Yeah. Maybe I'll send you some. Awesome. Please. <laughs> on that note, I think it's time for me to get into my whiskey segment. Let's do it. Okay. So what happens when you bend, bend, blend, rather, the best of the UK and the USA? Well, in the case of rock, you get a band like Foreigner. What happens when you try to do the same thing in the whiskey world? Well, you just might end up with something like the Glenfiddich Bourbon Barrel Reserve 14-year-old whiskey. Oh. So, follow me here. Very nice. The 14-year-old Bourbon Barrel Reserve delivers the smooth sophistication of Scotland with the sweet kick of Kentucky. Kind of like how the vocals of Lou Graham of the USA put the perfect finish on the lyrics penned by Mick Jones of the UK. I see what you did there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> anyway, malt master Brian Kinsman waits 14 years as the whiskey matures in ex-bourbon American oak casks. He then finishes the whiskey in ch- charred new American oak barrels supplied by the Kelvin Cooperage Company in Louisville, Kentucky. And the result is a rich, sweet, and vibrant single malt that delivers complex flavors of woody spices with ripe summer fruit. It's an expression 
that will inspire scotch and bourbon lovers alike to rethink whiskey. Very nicely done. Thank you very, very much. Nice. I see that what was, you did there. That was one yeah. of my favorite of the experimental series. And um, I drank I, I drank a whole lot of that when I was pouring for William Grant. So I can attest to the beautiful synergy that's in that bottle. Faux show. It's a real shame, too, because just single malts in general, because we all, I'm sure everyone in the whiskey circle has heard about the tariff that's going to hit the single malts. Yeah. The 25% tariff. And they're already Ouch. to a point. Yeah, they're struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been struggling because mm-hmm. of the bourbon boom. Yep. Um, yep. And this is just going to make it worse. So It's oh, a yeah. damn shame because yeah. I think the the bourbon boom has certainly hurt. It hurts certain brands, but I don't believe it's hurt. William Grant and and those type of brands. I don't think so. Oh, you're right. They weren't the ones selling the, you know, mid to low shelf blended scotch. And, you know, those guys like, you know, for me, like the Johnny Walkers, they're the ones feeling the pain, you know, and all the other whatever the stuff, blended stuff. Like the Chivas Regals. Yeah. I feel like, though, you know, since as Americans are becoming... Um, more astute that in whiskey in general, they're trying scotches. There's so many people I know that never drank scotch and, you know, they're, they're starting to become scotch drinkers. And, you know, I think that it's a damn shame that it's coming at this time, right when the shift was happening. And it's certainly a shame for us. So yeah, I, well, I good really, thing. Yeah. good thing. There's a lot of good American single malts coming out right now. Very yep. true. And that's why there's some, there their importance is growing as well. Mm-hmm. It's true. Indeed. Well, you know what you sometimes put in that whiskey glass? And to those tariffs, I say. You're as cold as ice. You're willing to sacrifice All right, so are you guys ready to talk about Foreigner? I am so ready. Let's Me talk. Too. Let's do it. So, okay, I didn't know um, this, I don't, I don't know how, for the longest time, that Foreigner was actually formed in New York City. I used to, I thought they were a British band for forever, I think up until a few years ago. And that's got to be, I guess, because of Mick Jones, not the Mick Jones of The Clash, Um, but this Mick Jones is a British bloke that was, um, in various, uh, successful bands, several of them, but he found himself stranded in New York city after a breakup with one of those bands that, that would suck. And it was the 1970s. Um, he ended up getting together with Al Greenwood, Stan Williams and Louisiana bassist Jay Davis. And they became, they began jamming. So, um, they took a really long time looking for a vocalist. Um, they had someone kind of filling in and then they tried someone else out and just nobody was working. Um, but then Mick came across Lou Graham and of course we all know he found exactly what he was looking for. So Lou, along with another bassist, Ed Gagliardi completed the band. Yeah. And at first they called themselves Trigger. 
and they sent out their demo to many, many labels, and all of them passed until Atlantic finally came along and um, asked them to change their name because I think there was some kind of a conflict with the name. There too. was another band mm-hmm. called yeah. Trigger, yeah. So, yeah. but thankfully they did, and in November of 1976, they went into the studio and. Um, so hang on a second. Can you imagine passing on Foreigner, like being those a holes? Like oh just gosh. within like a f- six months after passing, they must have been like, "Fuck." Yeah, there were a lot of <laughs> depressed because uh, like they, people everybody that. turned them down. Yeah. Like because Atlantic had gotten that tape, their demo a long time ago, and then it was like resubmitted, and they finally listened to it. So they passed on them as well. I just <laughs> wonder what that must must have felt like. You know, <laughs> you let them go. <laughs> Well, anyway, the reason they chose the name Foreigner was because of their band being composed of three Brits and three Americans. And their thought process was that, you know, they would be foreigners no matter where they performed. It's very cute. Mm-hmm. And out of that recording, the band's debut album, Foreigner, was released in March 1977 and sold more than four million copies in the U.S., staying in the top 20 for a year with such hits as Feels Like the First Time, Cold as Ice, and Long, Long Way from Home. Holy shit. Like, damn. Yeah, we've talked about uh, many times on many different shows, um, great debut albums, debut albums Mm -hmm. that just hit the ground running. Uh, Foreigner self-titled certainly has to be in that conversation with all the other ones we've discussed. Um, So after the release by May 1977, they were already headlining theaters and had already scored a gold record for their first album. So you're talking two months yeah. Two months after. Yeah. Yes. Not long after this, they were selling out U.S. arenas. Can you imagine your first album? You're selling out U.S. <sighs> arenas. Like that's ridiculous. Yes. Yeah, and I was remember hearing stories about how they, you know, in their first shows they would play, and they were really nervous because they never played in front of audience of this is the size Correct. before, and they only had like. The, the songs on their first album to play. Yep. That's all the songs they had. So when they yep. would get done, they'd be calling for an encore and they'd have nothing yep. to play. They'd have nothing to play. They didn't even get to really play in small clubs either. So when they went out and they were like oh, headlining, it was like big theaters. Yes. So and the key, still like yeah. big crowds, you know. And the key word there, I think the key word is headlining. They're not yeah part of a festival or right. playing with three or, or four of the bands. Yeah, they or getting are the, headliner. the opening band and being yeah. an opening band is really great for practice. It's really great, you know, to get tight, to get, you know, to really just build like just, you know, yeah. Yeah. Just, I can't even, I can't yeah. even imagine yeah, that like never happens. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't happen <laughs> that early. No, <laughs> especially at that time. No. Um, so after almost a year on the road, uh, the band played before over 200,000 people. <laughs> fucking kidding me this is one year after their debut album one year <laughs> i don't even think it was a full year actually yes this is two <laughs> years after they were passed up yeah <laughs> two years okay uh two hundred thousand people at california jam 2 on march 18th 1978 it is almost one year because the album was released on march 8th so it's almost mm-hmm. one exact calendar year they're playing in front of two hundred thousand people you know, uh, kudos to the promoters at Atlanta. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, I think on. it was just the qual- 
See, I, I, I don't think it was the promotion. Well, it had to be a combination of the two. It had These took, were radio hits They had to instantly. get it out there, and then boom, well, sure. once it hit the radio waves. But, yeah. But back then, you just drop it in radio stations. And I mean, these were instant hits, you know? These mm-hmm. guys were saying, like, literally within, I think they said two weeks of it being sent out to promoters before it ships to stores, boom. It was, a, it was instant radio hits, like, just instantly. I don't okay. think there was much promoting needed on something like this. What do you have to do exactly? Like, it's it's popular the minute it it's played for the first time. I think you get to just sit on your ass at that point. It's very true. Um, and during the following month, the band toured Europe, Japan, and Australia. So they have circled the world in one year. It's I can't imagine what that must have been like for them. And and to yeah, I think so we've we've discussed so many bands that came after these guys, and not long after that would this would have made them implode instantly. The pressure of that, the pressure of you know the minute you know within weeks of your album being mastered, it's the number one hit on the radio station, right. and you have to hit the road, and you don't even get a chance to to really practice what it's like playing live together right. in different types of arenas with different sounds, small, big, large, whatever, whatever. And you just have to do it and you have to succeed because the expectation of your first album is greater than probably a lot of the band's albums that they've ever made of a lot of artists we've talked about <laughs> on this show. I think that and it's funny because I have to go back to what something that Ed and I said on the Quiet Riot episode when we were kind of struggling to name American rock bands that made a huge impact around this time, maybe early seventies. Um, I was on and the I show, think, I would have brought these. Well, no, it's true. But we I did think bring that, it up. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think foreigner kind of filled that vacuum at this time. I think that's why they exploded so quickly because I think there was a yearning for, uh, a band like this at that time that wasn't one of the you know the British heavy metal bands or something like that. I think that they played to a lot of different uh, genres, a lot of different crowds at this time. Yeah, yeah. it was like have... that. Everybody's yeah. rock, like the all, oh, yeah. like yeah. you know, like anybody could appreciate this type of rock. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then you had uh, Van Halen right on their heels in '78 coming exactly. out their mm-hmm. debut. Exactly. And off yeah. we go. I mean, it's just ridiculous, you know, uh, and like I said, you know, just I can't I can only imagine that either the pressure, you know, either they just did really well under the pressure or they were so new that they weren't realizing the pressure, you know, that it was just like, well, this is happening. Let's just go along for the ride. And I think also what I've noticed, especially since we've been covering these bands and just from a lot of I like to read a lot of music biographies um, I've noticed that if your intention is I'm just a musician and I just want to play music and, you know, however that works out great, but, you know, really all I'm looking for is just to play good music. Mm-hmm. It, instead of I want to be famous, I'm looking for fame. You know, I think that's the difference as well. These guys were just looking to, you know, make a living off playing music and they just want to pay their rent and play good music. It's all about where your focus is. Yeah, that's the difference as well. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Silla, because Lou Graham actually had a great quote that I read. He did an interview. Um, I think it was with Rolling Stone, but he says, uh, 
when he was asked about their approach to making music, he says, we try to make things simple, catchy, and timeless. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of wraps it up in a nutshell that's right there. That's mm-hmm. exactly They're, what they did. And that's what they did. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and if the insane success of their first album wasn't enough, then comes their second album, Double Vision, which was released in June of 78. And holy shit, it topped their previous <laughs> album sales. <laughs> I mean, in a way, I feel bad for these guys. It's awesome. But also, I can't even, again, like the pressure, how fast everything must have been going for them. They were selling, um, they sold 5 million records when it came out with hits like Hot Blooded, um, the title track Double Vision, and Blue Morning, Blue Day. Like, okay, Hot Blooded. So, Ed, I know that you have a story as well. I have a very, it's one of those memories from childhood that, you know, I'll probably be able to tell the story you know, when I'm demented, you know, at 100 years old, I'll, I'll probably this story will still have such clarity. But I was about what did we say at a seven years old, probably when yeah. this happened? Yeah, because of when the song came out. So Hot Blood, it was all over the radio. But the first time I heard it, I was at my grandparents house, we were out by the pool. And my two older cousins were babysitting me. And I thought they were the coolest dudes that ever walked the earth. I'm the oldest of my siblings, so I didn't have, you know, anyone above me except for these cousins. And I just thought they were the coolest guys. They had long hair, they had feathered hair, they wore cut-off jeans with no shirt, they would work on their cars. They were like the cool, cool guys, you know. And um <laughs> they're they're sitting on their it didn't take much back then. Um <laughs> I was seven, Quan. They were sitting on the <laughs> pool chairs and they had one of those little AM FM radios with the really um, tall antenna that you would mm-hmm. <laughs> put up. And hot blooded came on and they both lost their shit and like <laughs> cranked it up and were like doing air guitar in their chairs. And I was just in the pool looking at them like, <laughs> like, oh my God. These guys, they're the coolest. And this song is the coolest. Because they were rocking out to it, of course. I don't know that I would have been aware this was an awesome song yet at seven freaking years old. But so I became obsessed with the song. I actually ended up asking for the the single. And we also realized it was probably on um, eight track, not not a cassette yet. <laughs> I'm sure. But I, I had it made me think about. Um, you know, collecting music, what you know, we've talked about this before, like what age were you when you started really collecting music and asking for your own? And at the time, I only had like what I call baby records, like I had a Smokey and the Bear record, and I had a Fox and the Hound picture disc and a Hobbit picture disc, but I did have the Grease soundtrack that I was obsessed with because the movie had just come out a couple of years before that, and then I had this. And a Bee Gees eight track, so. Oh man, I had the so, Bee Gees on cassette. I remember that. Oh boy. Yeah, I had my mom gave me a couple of her eight tracks. That and um, Saturday Night Fever, I had that eight track as mm-hmm. well, because I remember the John Travolta and like the pose on the cover right. of it. Still one so, of the top selling soundtracks of all time. I know. Still, forty years later. I know. Yeah. So that's my memory of Hot Blooded. My awesome. early memory. What about you, Ed? Well, 
Yeah, me, I, I just, I, as I told you earlier, just sticks out in my, in my mind because um, it was the uh, summer after my freshman year of high school. We had just moved into a new house, and next door there was uh, a girl there who was a year younger than me, and she was having a little party at her house, and um, I went over there, introduced myself to her, and um, I could hear the song Hot-Blooded coming out of the, the windows for all the kids inside who were partying in there, and yeah, that's how I remember that. that song. It always comes down to a girl. There Isn't it great how music can do that? Music yes. can just take you to a time, a place, a mm-hmm. moment. Just like it's, um, it's fucking amazing. It transports you. Instantly. I have a thousand stories like that about different yeah. songs, different bands. Yeah. Yep. But anyway, they did eventually release a third album, and again, like bands <laughs> did back in those days, every year, every year, a new yeah. album, great times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good times. And their third album, Head Games, was released in September of 1979, and it was referred to by Graham as their grainiest album. Um, And it was also, of course, a ridiculous success with hits like Dirty White Boy and the cover, or I'm sorry, the uh, title song, Head Games. The album cover, of course, stirred up a little bit of controversy as it depicted a young girl in a boy's bathroom wiping her name off a... name a number off the wall and you know some people said you know claimed it was sexualizing an underage girl and uh you know back in the back in that day that might have been a little controversial today it would be like nothing people wouldn't yeah. think twice about it yeah but, I agree. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah back then it, i guess it was considered a little risque so there was a little change for the album Head Games as bassist Ed Gagliardi was replaced by Englishman Rick Wills. So much easier and, to say. Like, thank yeah, you, Rick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, actually, in uh, Lou Graham's autobiography, which is titled Jukebox Hero, I mean, why not, right? Of course. Uh, Graham best, <laughs> explains... Best autobiography name ever. Of course, I mean. <laughs> uh, explains why the band parted ways with Gagliardi. He was a little hesitant. His name was too hard to say. Yeah, this and and this is quoting here. He was a little headstrong and had his own ideas that weren't always compatible with what we were trying to accomplish. Ed was obstinate at times, playing the song the way he wanted to play it rather than the way it was drawn up. Jones often had to stop sessions to get Ed back on track. After a while, it became tiresome and slowed down the recording process. End quote. Um, I find this kind of hypocritical coming from someone like Lou Graham, who, um, in his own right, had quite the feud with his partner, Mick Jones, who they, as we will see as time goes on, weren't really on the same page all that much. Um, but I know uh, I was surprised to read this too, as being that he, like, I could see him saying that at the time. Sure. But I was, I have to say, I totally agree with you. I was really surprised to read this in Jukebox Hero um, as him being so far beyond it and looking back and not recognizing like, yeah, you know, we were kind of control freaks and he wasn't just going along with the mix. And so that's why he got the boot. It's not hard to say, you know, but. Well, he ended up being the control freak, but I think him, him. Yeah. That's what I mean, that they were the control freaks and Gagliardi wasn't just going, "Uh uh-huh, yep, yes, whatever you say, sir, you know. (laughs) 
So uh, Graham actually went on to say that he was disappointed overall with head games and thought it sounded unfinished. It ended up selling about 2 million fewer than its predecessor. Still. Still. It's like 4 million. It's still like one of the best selling (laughs) rock records. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Head games. There's like 50,000 hits on that album. Jesus. Um, But Gagliardi, my favorite name to say, wasn't the only one on the chopping block. In September of 1980, co-founders Greenwood and McDonald were also sacked. Um, Again, that's why I'm like, how do you have the balls to say what you said? So Mick Jones wanted to have more control over the band and write most of the music along with Graham. And then Graham is quoted again as saying, the chemistry that made the band right in the beginning didn't necessarily mean it would always be right. I think a pretty major communication lapse appeared, and I don't think anybody really knew what anyone else was feeling. The deep inner belief about the direction of the band and how we were progressing. Um, They had reached a point where there was a lot of dissatisfaction. You know, well, I mean, yeah, that shit happens. Yeah. And in the late 80s, Graham would leave the band at some point and then later return. Lots more lineup changes. And, uh, you know, the band's history just isn't that interesting. It's got the usual lineup changes and such. But, um, yeah, they just hit success so quickly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and then... And you don't have a lot of stories either. Like, I've read Jukebox Hero, but there aren't, like, tons of interesting they weren't huge partiers it doesn't sound like you know what i mean like right it wasn't there isn't a lot to say other than yeah. we could get into the minutiae of songwriting and you know musicality and they've got all that going on for them but you know for like a timeline uh, i think we, they they like the they like the cocaine well yeah. sure they but did yeah it was pretty normal at the time well, i normal level yeah. of rock band partying okay we've heard it all mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying but um, there isn't any like shockers in their backstory or things that, you know, you wouldn't expect. So I just kind of felt like since we're doing, you know, five albums, this was enough for for a backstory for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing because like when we're we were just reading that last part about how they were all there was so much dissatisfaction and they had reached a point where they weren't really connecting with each other it kind of like quickly reminded me of the beatles in a way like mm-hmm. toward, the, toward the end where they're still churning out this amazing fucking music yes but they can't even stay in the same room with each other that's such a good point and i, yeah. I again i i think when you have so many members in your band that are on their in their own right incredibly talented say what you will about ringo and george i don't think it's ever been fair i think when you're up against McCartney and Lennon, you're you're fucked no matter yeah. what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, they were incredibly creative writers, incredibly innovative. Um, you know, they, they, I think if if George and Ringo hadn't been in the Beatles, they would have still been famous. I think you know, and I don't think we would look upon them. Well, I don't, but people wouldn't look upon them as they do. But I think you, that can only last for so long. Because someone eventually is going to want to be the leader or so, everyone's going to want to start doing their own thing. They have their own ideas and their own. I mean, same thing, I think, happened in Fleetwood Mac. Like you had yeah. all these incredibly talented artists all together. How long? I mean, they were kind of did what the Beatles did. Like everyone would take turns like 
singing, like being the lead vocalist on this song. Okay, we'll write, okay, what's your song? Okay, we'll write that one. What's your song? Okay, we'll write that one. But again, that's probably what kept them together for as long as they were initially because they would give the spotlight every now and then. Correct. Do you know what I mean? Like share the spotlight. But if you don't have the ability to, I mean, it just so happened that um, everybody but Mick or Mac was a vocalist, you know, and everyone can play instruments and like, that's, you know, kind of like the Beatles. So. um, Can I ask you a quick, without digging down this rabbit hole too quickly, but I have to ask you this question since you, we mentioned the Beatles, do you think that, Lennon and McCartney were held on such a high pedestal. Obviously, they were the songwriters. They were the, the the meat and potatoes behind everything. But do you think that they were held on a higher plane than the other two because they had so much success after the Beatles? No, I don't. I okay. think it had everything to do with them being the two frontmen, okay. them being the main vocalists, them being, I don't think anyone would argue, considered the more attractive ones, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think that to me, I think that's probably why. Um, and I think the two of them also wanted more fame than it sounds like if you've ever read anything about Ringo and George, they weren't as into the fame as McCartney and Lennon were. And, you know, Lennon liked to say that he wasn't into the fame at all, but I mean, come on, you know, yeah, um, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I totally disagree with that, but. I, I think it's personality differences too. I think they both were typical front men and Ringo and George were not, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, if you, I mean, how do you follow up with on what McCartney did? Forget what Lennon even did on his own. I don't care how great it is compared to that. Yeah. Th- that's definitely another factor. It's yeah. going to be a suck fest or considered <laughs> to be a suck fest if they didn't exist. Like I said, I think they would have been very well regarded in their own right. I think it's the same with these guys, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think um, you needed Mick Jones and Lou Graham together, in my opinion. I think, but I think you needed the other guys because look what happens later after these albums. I mean, we stopped at, you know, we kind of stopped after Agent Provocateur because what is that shit? I don't know. But yeah. once they started parting ways with their original lineup, I think that that's when everything began to change. And sometimes it is that magic of those people all together, whether mu- the musicians want to believe it or not. You know, like when you make a pasta sauce, everything together makes the delicious pasta sauce. You can't say, well, it's only the sausage and the tomato. No, fuck that. You need the oil. You need the peppers. You need the Correct. onion. You need the garlic. Yeah. Well, we're going to take away the garlic, and it'll still be really good. It might be good still, but it's not going to be as great as it was with the garlic. Or a cocktail. It, exactly. It's, yeah, same kind yeah. of analogy. Yeah. Exactly. So I think you needed those. In my opinion, I really think that as they were peeling away founding members, they were peeling away a little bit of their great music (laughs) it's true so we're gonna battle but not this week we're saving that for next week can we give them an idea about what albums we're gonna be battling oh sure
Okay. This is going to be bloody when we come back next week, so get ready. We will be battling their debut self-titled album, Foreigner, against Double Vision, against Head Games, against Four, and against Agent Provocateur. So, gentlemen, get into your corners and actually stay there. Stay there until next week when we battle the hell out of these five flippin' albums. You don't want to miss this one. And listeners, this will also give you a chance to listen to these albums too ahead of time and form your own opinion and see if you agree with ours. Yes, and we want to hear from you. Not that we'll have any bearing on our outcome, but still care about your but opinion. But maybe we can sort maybe of. we can ask Matt to set up a little poll on the grams. We could, yes. We could do like a little mini bracket. Mm-hmm. I like that. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So until next time, Ed Matt. or Matt, it's over to you. <laughs> <laughs> so st- thanks for sticking around, listeners. We, we hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as we did. And as always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Spirit of Rock Podcast Network, at Metal Rock Whiskey. And we also have a super cool Facebook group under Spirit of Rock Podcast Network. And follow us individually, of course. If you can find me at the Whiskey Obsessor, that is Whiskey Save the E, Sailor. Save the E. I'm Sailor Retro all over the damn place. Yeah, if you want to see what I'm up to, you can always find me on Instagram at Bourbon Geek. And hey, listeners, if you love us or even just like us, Please, we ask that you hit that subscribe button on your podcast feed of choice and give us a review because it really does matter and help us out. And of course, tune in next week for the next episode of Metal Rock and Whiskey. Fuck you, Lars. Bye bye. Thought I'd bring it back. Later, everyone.